Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. For this month's episode, Simon Austin has been speaking with Brighton Technical Director Dan Ashworth. He talked about his role at the club, giving young people opportunities, and his time with England. Over to Simon. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today, Dan. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Uh, what's your day been like today? Um, well, I think one of the beauties of this job is every day is totally different. So um, it's the day before a game. Um, so obviously there's been a training session, although I don't train or get involved in the training sessions, but there's been a, a, a bit of talk around the club, obviously, about how we prepare for the Liverpool game tomorrow. So a couple of meetings with Graham and his staff. We've had uh, a review of um, some of the things we want to try and do in January. So that might be players in, players out, some loans, things like that. And what we're doing, we've got quite a few players out on loan. So obviously we're into some decisions for, for some of those. A bit of lunch and then on with you. Yeah, excellent. Um, I think there's still quite a bit of confusion, isn't there, among the public and maybe wider about exactly what a technical director does. So how would you describe your role? Yeah, I think you're right. There's a great deal of confusion um, with, with what it is. And I think partly because um, I heard something the other day, I think sort of 17 of the 20 Premier League clubs have got this, this sort of role. But there's lots of different titles. There's technical director, there's sporting director, there's director of football operations, there's director of football. Um, so there's lots of different versions of it. And, and with that comes different um, job descriptions. My time in the FA, we tried to get or we wrote and delivered a, a technical director's course. But part of that was to invite in all those incumbents, those people that were in place and just sort of say, OK, what do you do? What's in your job description? It was so different. You know, some are pretty much based, uh, I say, just on recruitment. I mean, that's a full time job in itself. Mm -hmm. so some are, um, you know, involved in academies. Some have medical and sports science as well. Some have training ground operations. So, so varied. I think it's fair to say, as you do, that a lot of the jobs have been around recruitment, haven't they, really? So how big a portion of your job now is recruitment, would you say? Yeah, so I mean that's the 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 misconception I think out there that the technical director, sporting director, director of football is, is just recruitment, and I think for pretty much all of us, um, recruitment is a major part of the role, but it's only one part of the role. So I have seven people that I work quite closely with. I think historically we would have said direct reports, but I don't really like sort of hierarchical structures. I I would always draw it as a wheel. And I sit in the middle of the hub of the wheel and my job is to, like spokes of a wheel, bring together those seven departments. I sit in the middle of the wheel and there's two things really, is to connect all those spokes together. Uh, and secondly, is when one of those head departments leave, you keep the wheel spinning and recruit one of those heads of department. Now, historically and traditionally, the one that's most likely to leave, unfortunately, is the first team manager. The average lifespan and longevity of a first team manager in this country is around about 14 months, I think. So again, the principle and the philosophy for a, for a technical director, and this is only my opinion, so it, it doesn't mean it's, it's right or it's wrong, is to look after the medium to long-term interests of the football club. It's not about you know short-term getting a result tomorrow against Liverpool. It's to try and make sure that the club's set up in a way that all of those other seven uh, departments supplement and help, help Hope and Graham, and I'll, and I'll describe how we set it up in a second, but also are there for some, you know, the longer term benefits of the club. So it's things like looking after the budgets, it's player recruitment, it's academy, etc. So how we set it up at Brighton is that these, these seven departments around the outside of the wheel, if you like. Um, so one is Graham Potter, obviously first team men's uh, head coach. Uh, one is Hope Powell, who runs our women's senior team in the WSL. Paul Wynn Stanley is our head of recruitment. John Morling is our head of academy. Adam Brett is head of medical services. We have David Weir, who's in charge of our loans program and our players out on loan. Uh, and we have James Bell, who's in charge of our psychology and mental well-being. So they're the seven heads of department. And as I said, the idea is to try and connect all of those and bring them together. So what does that actually mean? Well, so, for example, you know, a, a playing philosophy. Um, it's important that the academy, the players that are out on loan, our recruitment department and our first team have some sort of alignment so that we're trying to develop players sign players recruit players that will be able to do the things that we would like them to do so we were you know things that we would see important in our playing style or how we want to try and develop the club so that would just be an example it might be things like nutrition it might be things like night uh, psychology but just trying to get that consistency across the club so we are one club 
uh, with a framework of what works uh, for Brighton. Now, does that mean that we're robots and every team plays in the same way? No, we don't believe that's the right thing. But we would certainly have some basic principles of which all of our players we would try and develop, uh, we recruit for in order to try and help uh, Hope and Graham win enough football matches um, to keep the club successful. So that would be sort of the main main parts, I suppose. And the other two things that I think are important is the ability or, or the connection from the boardroom in, onto the football pitch. So obviously most clubs, every club has a board, they have a chairman, they have CEO, they have you know budgets, they have philosophies, they have principles in which it's really important that we try and get those across. So whether that's club values or maximising the budget and, and uh, you know making sure that we're spending the money the right way, but it's been able to translate both ways, you know, so from the boardroom and their principles onto what we do at the training ground and vice versa into the boardroom. And the final part, uh, and the one that I'm really, really passionate about of all of my particular roles is opening up pathways for young players. So I think sometimes uh, I've seen uh, where, you know, clubs work in silos and the academy is working maybe at a different building, maybe a different way. And, you know, and they're working all hours God sends to try and develop players for the first team. And the recruitment department are working all hours God sends to try and sign players for the first team. And they're not necessarily joined up. And the first team, sorry, the recruitment department are busy looking at a right back from overseas when actually there might be one just under their nose in the academy. And that's something that I feel is really important in this role. I know when you were with England, the England DNA was a big part of your job and very well publicised. Have you got a Brighton DNA as well then? Yeah, so I think um, we, we had something at West Brom when I was there. We had something at England and we got something at Brighton. Now, they're not all necessarily called the same things, but certainly from, from a club perspective, um, with the inception of EPPP, the Elite Player Performance Plan, one of the things that the clubs are encouraged to do is have that consistency of philosophy when they go through. And that might be coaching, might be playing, like I say, might be recovery, whatever it might be. So most of the clubs in the country would do that now. Um, so, you know, it was uh, the role of, of one of my roles is to, to join that up and make sure that, you know, that's that's aligned. From an England perspective, it was always slightly different because ultimately we only saw the players probably around about five times a year, five international breaks. And invariably, we were bringing players in. So if we had a, a squad of, you know, 20 players, they're probably coming in from 10 different clubs. So not only are you only seeing them for 50 days a year, you're also seeing them from multiple different clubs, all of which will might have a little twist on, uh, you know, a principle of philosophy. Some might press, some might go low block, for example. And so we felt it was even more important from an England point of view to really get that consistency. So when you're coming up the driveway of St. George's Park uh, and, you, you know, you're parking your club hat at the driveway, when you put your England hat on and you're coming to spend those 10 days with us at England, at least you had some principles. Ah, yeah, I remember what we did with the 17s. I remember what we did on the last camp. I remember what we did as we came through the pathway and just trying to to really make sure that we've got those consistencies and all of the things that we tried to do uh, across the England team. So, yeah, it's similar, but very, very different at a club because you, you can sign players. At England, you never sign players. You can make decisions on loans, for example, where a player will go on loan. What does he need? What doesn't he need? What would be good for him? And you you might even make decisions on, you know, you might send a, a centre forward, for example, might be better off towards the top of League One, where they might get lots of chances and in a team that's an attacking team that he might likely score more goals than a team that may be towards the bottom of the championship that doesn't score so many goals. So, And a defender might be the other way around. So there's all those sort of decisions that we need to make that fits into our principles and philosophies and actually what's best for the player, what's best for the young players. I think, as you say, most academies have that philosophy, don't they? As part of EPPP, it's a requirement, I think. Maybe what I've not seen as much is where it unifies the whole club and the first team as well. So that's one thing, whether you've got that. And also, is there anywhere the fans can actually see it and read it and know what it is to share in it? Well, the first part of the question is, yes, we do have it. I, I can't speak for any other, uh, any other clubs. Uh, and, and secondly, no, there, there wouldn't be anywhere where it would go public. I think it's a personal private document, again, different with England. And the reason we went public with the England one, because I thought it was important, or we, me, Gareth and Matt Crocker at the time, felt it was important that we share with the clubs that when we borrow their players that this is what we're going to be doing with them. Now, now you won't agree with every single part of it. You know, you, this is why football is so prevalent on the radio and media and so on, because we've all got a slightly different viewpoint and it's great to get into arguments and discussions and debates and what's better, who's better, how's it better. Um, but we just felt it was really important to go public and go out there to, to basically the clubs and say, OK, look, at least we're going to be transparent. So when we borrow your players for 10 days, these are the things that we're going to be doing with them and this is why. 
from a club perspective, it's a little bit different because a, you don't have to do that. You don't borrow anybody else's players and, and, unless you might take one on loan. But it's more of a, a, a private document, I think, and, and a private plan that we would just work with, uh, you know, within a within a club context. Yeah, right. OK, so, so did you formulate a new philosophy since you came into the club two years ago? No, no. I mean, I, I think that's un, unfair to sort of suggest that. And it's not, and none of the places I've been has it been Dan Ashworth's philosophy. So it wasn't at West Brom, it wasn't at England, and it's not at Brighton. I think my job, and I, I suppose my, my principles um, on, on how you work with people is not, you know, autocratic. I don't believe in sort of, you know, telling people this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. I, I believe in collaboration. Um, and so, you know, when, when I, I, I came to Brighton, the, the academy, for example, had, had a really comprehensive a document, a Brighton way in which that they were going to, you know, help develop their players through to the first team. Um, so part of my role is to be able to join that up with the first team, uh, but, but also, you know, get a fresh pair of eyes on it. John Morling had, had, um, had been academy manager for six or seven years. We've been a, a Cat One club, I think, for four years when I started. So it's the, the plan was almost sort of four or five years old, albeit evolving all the time. And it's sort of okay. Well, ha- have you thought about that? And what about this? And here's a tweak that either you know maybe we worked at England, or when I was at England, I saw one or two of the other clubs doing. So no, it'd be really unfair to say that it, it's changed or there wasn't one, but it's just enabled me to to look maybe with a fresh pair of eyes and and support John and Graham and Ian Buckman and Paul Winstan and the people that you know are in situ to uh, to to try and join that up and maybe try and, uh, and and tweak it and think of a couple of different ideas as well. And I know you were saying that youth development's always been a passion of yours, and I know that was your background, wasn't it? How you got yeah. into the game after playing. Do you, do you think the English game and the Premier League has improved a lot on youth development in the last few years? Yeah. In terms of development yeah. and opportunities, really? Well, so certainly from a development perspective, yes. Um, you know, back in 1998, I think it was, when uh, when Howard Wilkinson and the FA had the Charter for Quality, that was the inception of academies. Um, when, when actually I first started my my work in youth development at Peterborough United, so I was there for the first year we had an academy. I'm that old, you see, Simon, that's uh, been, we've been doing it that long. So that was the first step, I think, on trying to improve youth development. You know, you put um, something together where you know, it's got to be a certain number of contact hours. You've got to have certain qualifications as a coach. There was an enhanced games program and put some rigor around, you know, developing young people, just as you would do in the education system. You know, there's a curriculum to follow in the school education. You get inspections from Ofsted, you know, so try and put some, um, put some rigor around that. And then the EPPP is taking it on to another level. So Jed Roddy in the Premier League, when Jed was at the Premier League, you know, their, their vision about trying to develop a, a Cat 1 and an EPPP system in order to, to, to put those next steps. So and the, the young players come in with fabulous facilities now, a fabulous coaching structure, really highly qualified coaches, you know, so many staff around and supporting pretty much every single one of the disciplines. So that area, it's come on leaps and bounds. And, and you know, I was lucky enough to benefit from that from the England point of view. Because, you know, when, when, when we're able to go and win World Cups at 17s and 20s, European Championships at 17s and 19s, you know, Toulon, all those things in, from a youth development point of view, you can only do that with good players. Um, and although, obviously, you know, I, I thought our coaches in, in England were really good, but, you know, if, the, if they haven't got the right tools to work with, it doesn't matter how good they are. They're, they're not going to win World Cups. So that was really, I think, a, a real marker in just how good the clubs have been at developing young players and just how good our our young players are on a world and European stage. So that was evidence, if you want evidence, you know, just, just how well the clubs have done and just how well the, the youth development programme is doing. Opportunities is slightly different. And I think from a, certainly from a Premier League point of view, um, and I have been guilty of this and I am guilty of this, is that because you have so much money in relation to pretty much the majority of all the other leagues in the world, there's a couple, and certainly, you know, there's some some, some uh, big clubs in those leagues, but um, pretty much as a league, we are the richest league in the world. So at the disposal of a club like Brighton or West Brom or, you know, not, not even the top six clubs in the Premier League, we can pretty much compete for most players in the world. And when you're trying to put together a squad that can survive and thrive in the Premier League, the temptation is to go with proven players, proven international players, players that are able to come in and they're here and now ready. 
And I, I've done it. I still do it to a certain extent. You know, we've signed Joel Veltman this season um, from, from Ajax. You know, he's a, a here and ready player. You know, he's ready to come in and participate in the Premier League. And so, you know, there's there's, there's a temptation to, to fill your squad with those players to give you the best possible chance of winning on a Saturday. And sometimes it's about taking that step back and going, all right. But then within that, we have got Ben White. We have got Aaron Connolly. We have got Stephen Alzati. We have got Rob Sanchez, who's made his Premier League debut. Jason Malumbi came on against Aston Villa to make his Premier League debut. So there are still those young players. And I think of all the, the things that I probably learned in the... I mean, I've been doing this for 13, 14 years. I've been a technical director now. It's about giving young people a chance. And that might be a young coach. It might be a young player. It might be a young physio. But actually, you don't know what quite what they can do until you give them an opportunity. Um, and there's a temptation in the Premier League. We don't do that. But just because we can afford not to. Whereas quite often young players and young people get their chance in adversity. So, you know, if a club is financially stricken or you've got a load of injuries or, you know, that's when young players tended and tend to make their debuts and, and, and have a go because we can afford, like I say, certainly in the Premier League, not to have to take that risk and that gamble. And I think that's a dreadful shame because I do think there's some super young players out in the system that could thrive and survive in the Premier League. And it's just about us as a game and certainly my, my, my sole focus now um, um, is a, is about opening up those pathways for Brighton Hove Albion, you know, sole focus, sole focus for our young players. It's not the sole focus of my job. Whereas at England, I was probably, you know, try, trying to to get more clubs to, to try and open up those pathways. So clearly that's not my job now. It's just to focus on Brighton Hove Albion. Yeah. And I guess that's the beauty of the technical director role again, that you can take a bit more of a long-term view. Whereas a head coach or a manager, they've got that pressure for immediate results. They might not want to give a young player an opportunity when they can bring one in oven ready, as you say. Yeah. And I, and I, look, I get that. I sympathize with that uh, immensely. I've never been a manager. Um, I don't want to be. And that's, I think that's one of the important roles, although, you know, I spent 10, 12 years coaching and worked my way up to becoming a pro licensed coach, ho hopefully be able to speak the language and understand what, you know, Graham Hope and, uh, and all the other really good managers I've been lucky enough to work with. But, but uh, and even I've, I've coached from under 21s downwards, I've never been a first team coach or a manager. So do I fully understand the pressures that they go through on a Saturday? No, I don't. I think I've got a pretty good idea. Um, and there's some, certainly there's some, some pressures as being a technical director as well. So it's really easy for, you know, me and, and me being a previous academy manager and academy managers and, and others to say, oh, just chuck the kids in. Well, they're not the ones who have to answer to the press or the 30,000 plus fans every Saturday if the result doesn't go their way. So I think it's much easier said than done which why it's really important. I think that, you know, I have a good relationship with Graham and all the other people that I've managed to, to work with from a first team point of view and understand their world, but also understand John Morling's world and just try and connect the two. So to give our academy players the hope and opportunity that they might get a go, but give Graham the support that he's got the tools in order to, to compete in the Premier League. And it's not an easy balance. Uh, and it's not easy for Graham Potter and all the other managers in the Premier League just to simply say, ah, oh, just put him in. What, what does it matter? Well, blimey. You know, when you're the one who has to answer the media and, uh, and all the interviews and all the spotlight and speculation they get nowadays, it's not quite so easy. So, you know, I, I thoroughly admire all of the Premier League, in fact, all of the managers, because they're under so much pressure. And to try and put a young player in, an unproven player in, is, is a huge, huge uh, vote of confidence, if you like. And, and like I say, it's, uh, it's much easier said than done. And I was reading John Morling saying there's a target of getting 30% of starters in the first team uh, as homegrown players. Yeah, it's just 30% of minutes. So that's that's the loftiest target of, of, of our academy. We want, you know, we want to have 30% of the minutes that's played out across, across the Premier League. So... You know, so you know, we've got players that contribute regularly. So uh, I say the old guard, uh, so Dunkey and Solly March, uh, have both come through the youth system and, and play pretty regularly. Uh, ben White is obviously contributing to that and, and some of the others that I've named. So, you know, Alzate and Connolly and Sanchez, uh, all have made, Malumbi came on and albeit, I, I think, managed to play 90 seconds. But it's trying to have that sort of long-term ambition that, that our academy can, can contribute 30% of, uh, of the playing minutes for our Premier League team. And that's that's quite a... A target, if you like. Um, but I, th I think, you know, if, if they continue to do the job that they're doing and we, we can continue to give them the opportunities either out on loan or here with our first team at the right time, then uh, I don't think it's impossible. No. Have you set a target on that, a time frame? No. And, and actually, it was John's target. 
Um, so it was John set that target. It was that target was running before I came in. So no, there's not necessarily time. But what I sit down with John, funny enough, I did it last week. But you know, certainly at the end of the season, okay, well, how many minutes have we got this season? How can we try and help you get those thirty percent minutes whilst trying to help Graham? You know, stay in and hopefully finish in the top ten of the Premier League. So it's a fine balance, and and sometimes young players can come straight in. Um, sometimes they need a loan experience, but there's no one set pattern. Uh, we've had some really different ones. So you know, Ben White was almost a poster boy when it comes to loans. So he went to Newport in League Two. He played a full season there. He then came back. He played half a season in our under 23s. He then went to Peterborough in League One in the second half of that season. Um, then came back. He then went to Leeds for a full season in the Championship. So he's had a steady rise, if you like, from from a league perspective. And of course, did amazingly well at Leeds last season, helped them gain promotion. And now he's in and uh, off the top of my head, I think started every one of our Premier Leagues this season. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he has. So that's a, a sort of a trajectory where you say, OK, that could be. Low. And then on the flip side, we've had some Aaron Connolly, uh, uh, I think, had 27 minutes of loan football. So Aaron got Premier League two player of the year the year before last as a centre forward. Um, he'd gone to, to Luton. Um, to go on loan, but he'd suffered a, a, a quite a nasty hamstring injury. So he wasn't fit until the end of March. Luton knew that. Um, by the time he got to Luton, they were flying. They were they were in there running for promotion, I think with seven games left, winning team, you know, pushing for promotion. So Aaron had a, a couple of appearances off the bench. So, you know, one, one's had 27 minutes to be a first team player uh, and one's had, oh, blimey, probably almost 100 games. But that's young players for you. That's youth development. There is no magic recipe that will get them from the uh, the academy under-18s into a Premier League team. There isn't because they're all human beings. They're all different. They need a different opportunity, a different pathway. And again, it also depends on what you've got in the building. If you've got a, a real positional shortage for they're more likely to get in. If you've got a load of centre-backs in Ben's case, they're less likely to. Yeah, it was interesting, actually, uh, reading Matt Crocker's comments last week, um, your former colleague, where he's saying we're not going to send young players out on loan anymore at Southampton because they're much better off being in the building and being in our B team, which does go against the grain quite a lot. They seem to be the only ones saying that, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I worked closely with Matt for, what would it be, five or six years at the FA. He's great. Got so much time and respect for Matt. And I remember when he first came in, he'd come from as being the academy manager at Southampton. And that was the philosophy you had back then. You know, he's saying to me that, you know, I think at the time it would have been Luke Shaw, I think Ward Prowse, um, Lalana. Um, who else did they have in there that uh, he was Rachel talking about? England, I mean, they've had a, they've had a raft of players that have come through, and and their research at the time was actually the ones that get through are the ones that we've got in the building that we can sort of drop in and out of first team training, give the opportunity. It's right, absolutely get and respect that. Um, our model is slightly different. We do we do that as well. We do both. But we uh, we probably run with, um, with with more players. We've got quite a few players that are out on loan, and, and and our model is to be able to choose to do both. So, you know, we value and invest in our under twenty threes team, and we see that as an important part of that perspective and that learning curve. As my example with Ben has just said, you know, he he went out on loan, came back for a period of time, went back out on loan, and Aaron had his development in the twenty three. So. Yeah, obviously it has worked brilliantly for Southampton, and uh, you know I, I understand why that why they want to do that. We, we've got a slightly different approach, and we're able to do both. We think. Yeah, and it was is it Andrew Crofts who's the overage player who plays? Yeah, him? that's interesting. I've not heard of anyone else doing that. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm not sure if Crofty would like to be referred to as being an old player, but uh, <laughs> we we tell him every day that he is. So. Yeah, this was a really interesting one. So we played Bayern Munich in uh, one of the Premier League um, uh, cup competitions. And um, we played them at under 21 level, under 23, when I can't remember what it was. And uh, it was soon after I started, I think. It was sort of February, March after I'd started. It was a cold, cold day down here at the training ground in Lansing. And uh, Bayern Munich rocked up in the, in the for an evening game. And I'm watching the game and they're centre-back. I'm like, look, at I think he's blimey. He looks 30-plus. Um, so after the game... I was speaking to John. I was like, "Is he? Uh, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's an experienced player." And they spoke to the Bayern Munich staff, who said, "No, he's signed and played. He never plays in the first team. He's never here to play in the first team. He's actually here to help our young players." And and that was one of the criticism I think for the under 23s. I hear a lot of people talk about you know back in the day when the reserve team you could drop down a couple of senior players and help the young help the young players. And and it's, I suppose it's a, a hybrid version of that. Uh, Crofty is a 
as a great individual. You, I, I don't think you can do this for every type. I think it needs a certain type to do this. So Crofty was uh, looking to come out of playing and into coaching. He was really passionate about becoming a coach. He still wanted to play. Um, so that gave him a bit of that, you know, training every day and still being able to play, but also the, the time to take uh, uh, his coaching qualifications and, and start, start that transition from player to coach. So he drives up standards every day when he trains. He doesn't train, you know, five times a week. He might train three and then he might focus more on the on the coaching side on the other two. We drop him in and out of games. Um, one of the things was we didn't want to block pathway. So he's not guaranteed to play. So we got, you know, for example, Jensen Weir and Teddy Jenks were two really good midfield players for us. So Crofty wouldn't automatically play instead of them, but just be around to drive standards on and off the pitch whilst he transitions he's an ex-Brighton Hove Albion player he's the right type um, you know he gets us as a club and, and and we've done that a few times actually with players coming out of, of playing into coaching so Bruno is on our first team staff Steve, Steve Sidwell easy for me to say Sid he works with our 16s um, has done a bit of work with our 18s as well whilst combining with a media career as he came out of playing Liam Rossini uh, worked with our 23s and he's now obviously on Derby's coaching staff we've got Ben Robertson Kasper Ankerson who are goalkeeper coaches who are ex-players so you know the club has done a really good job of transitioning those players uh, into coaching and it's just another way for us to do that bit of an experiment uh, but but Crofty's taken to it really well he's now on his pro license and uh, so he'll, he'll be a fully qualified um, coach in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. Yeah, that was really interesting. And another innovative area which you mentioned earlier was the well-being space. Um, and again, I think you're the only club that has kind of earmarked that, you know, for dedicated staff and a dedicated department. So how did that come about? Yeah, so um, that came about really from my, my uh, time at England. And we wanted to try and, again, go back to, we only see the players for 50 days. So it, we, we just felt if we did... The same as at the time when I first went in, I think we were 14, 15 in the world, hadn't done particularly well at, at youth level. And we were trying to crack the tournament code, if you like. You know, we wanted to try and get to where we could get to the latter stages of tournaments. So, OK, if we do exactly the same as Germany, France, Brazil, Spain, I think were the top ranked countries at the time, then how are we going to close that gap? And so, well, you're not because they've got good coaches, they've got good players, they see their players for 50 days at a time as well. So, okay, what sort of things can we do that will enable us to close the gap? So one of the areas that we felt that we could make a real difference was sort of that, you know, that psychology and mental well-being. And the players are with us for 24 hours a day um, when it comes to the, to, to the national team. So um, we felt that, you know, we could perhaps use some of that free time and some of that time to build team cohesion, to build confidence. Uh, and in particular, I think from an England point of view, pressure of tournaments is huge. And unless you've been in a tournament, you don't understand the pressure those players are under. Yeah. It is unbelievable. So it's just trying to find a way. And that's something I have to say that Gareth's done particularly well, is finding a way of removing that pressure. And, and, and Gareth used to talk about the weight of the England shirt was really heavy. Um, and, and, you know, the psychology and mental well-being aspect worked really well for us there, in particular in Russia. Um, so it's trying to sort of move that into it to club context. And, you know, I have to say that um, you look at pretty much most of the setups of clubs and it is a drastically under-resourced area. You know, so you look at analysts from when I first started in 98, when, you know, there's no such thing as an analyst. Um, you were lucky if you had a physio. You were lucky if you had an S&C coach. But, you know, there's so many analysts now. We've got teachers, we've got minibus drivers, we've got S&C coaches, we've got physios. And all of those departments are rightly, by the way, really well stocked for our young and our senior players. But psychology and mental well-being is not and what and certainly wasn't here. We didn't have a um, what, what, what I felt was um, the appropriate resource. So we looked into it, looked into how we could do it. Fortunately, we're given uh, a bit of budget by the club to support that area of the club and its players and staff, Simon. People forget that the staff are under huge pressure and also in a you know, high performance culture. We want the staff to be able to, to you know, develop players or um, get the best out of players on a Saturday in Graham and Hope's case. Uh, and there, there comes a lot of stress and pressures with that. And, and you know, with, with daily life, there's pressures. You know, there might be relationship struggles. There might be addictions. There might be loss of confidence. There might be depression. You know, people forget, again, 
understanding that we are all human beings. So it doesn't matter whether you're a footballer, you're a technical director, you're a first team manager or coach, or whether you work in a bank or a supermarket or you're a teacher, we are all human beings and we all suffer the same things. So, um, you know, it, it was we, we felt it was really important to try and put that support structure around our staff and players and, and, uh, and certainly support them from a mental point of view, as well as a physical point of view, a tactical point of view, a technical point of view and all the other things that football has been really historically good at supporting. So it's basically bringing in the whole person, really, because I guess we've had performance psychology for a while, optimising the psychology yeah. performance, but I get well-being's more the whole person and the person away from the club and the match and training, I guess. It is, and, and some of the things I've just talked about, and it could be anything as simple as, you know... <laughs> A relationship breakdown or anxiety or something and you know covid for example so um since march the, the the players in particular the foreign players haven't really been able to travel now i know we've had a couple of periods within that we had a bit of a relaxation in the summer but you know we, we've got players from belgium from holland from france whose family and friends would come and see them on a regular basis but since March, they've not been able to do that. So, you know, you can feel a, a sense of isolation in a foreign country. You can't see your family and friends, in particular in the two areas, you know, two lockdowns. Um, and other than a short window, you, you know, we've had some fairly um, restrictive quarantine periods. So if you if you do want a family or friend, friend member to come over from Holland, Belgium, France, you've got to quarantine for 14 days before you can even see them. So it becomes logistically really difficult. So you forget really that some of these young men and young women, you know, our WSL team as well, could feel quite isolated um, and away from family and friends. And you f we forget about that. So that was, that was just one area in particular, I guess, which has sort of highlighted the need to, to maybe have some support from that area as well. Yeah, yeah. It would be good to see other clubs sort of following that lead, really, I, I think. And then you, when you were talking about the spokes there, I suppose the uh, sort of most well-known spoke is Graham Potter. What was it that you saw in him when you brought, it, brought him in? What, what appealed? Well, I mean, I, I didn't really know Graham particularly well personally. He came on the pro license at the FA, so I had a, a, a bit to do with him, but I was leaving as he was doing his pro license, I think. So I knew of him, but didn't know him well. I think from Tony Bloom's point of view, he's got a vision for this club. You know, he's the owner, he's the chairman, he's the person that, you know, dictates policy. And he wanted to make sure that, you know, we were able to do some of the things I've just talked about here, you know, give opportunities to our young players, give opportunities to our loan players. And Chris Hewitt did a brilliant job. Chris was absolutely brilliant. You know, it helped uh, Brighton or get out of the championship, get a foothold in the Premier League. Um, but, but then, you know, T Tony felt he wanted to go in, into in a, into a slightly different direction. So, what do we see in Graham? Well, Graham had a brilliant record at Ostersons and Swansea of um, one punching above his weight. So, you know, get getting results. Um, probably that you shouldn't have got if you go sort of player for player, pound for pound. Uh, certainly outstretched the budget that he, he had at those clubs and a really, really good record at developing and improving young players. Uh, Daniel James is a great example. So Daniel James, I think, had been on, uh, had a loan at Shrewsbury the year before and couldn't get in Shrewsbury's team in League One. He comes in, Graham works with him. All of a sudden, you know, he's a multi-million pound player that's gone to Manchester United. So they were the sort of things that um, that, that attracted us to Graham and his record and, you know, the, the way he went about doing things like that with the development of young players. Yeah, and I know reading about his time at Ostersons, he was interesting what he did around culture and engaging with the local community. And do, do, does he do similar things to that now at Brighton? Yeah, I, it's, it's a, it's a different beast. I mean, Ostersunds, I've never been, but it's a, it's a pretty small town up in Northern Sweden and the league itself clearly is, is not as high profile as, um, as the Premier League, you know, Brighton's a very different city. Uh, so uh, I think I remember reading or seeing a, a dance or something that, yeah. that the players had done or a play for the local town. So no, he, he hasn't and we're not doing that. Well, certainly not that I'm aware of. Um, but I think the wider thing, as you talked about, is the word culture. Um, so setting a culture that gets the best out of people and players is the mark of a great leader, isn't it? Yeah. And that, again, it doesn't matter if you're CEO of Apple or you're the manager of Brighton Hove Albion. If you, if you can set a culture, which means people have got... Uh, the confidence to express themselves and the space to succeed uh, and you get the best out of them. That's all you can ask from any leader. Mm -hmm. and, and, and culture is, is, is a really important part for Graham. 
the personality and the player is really important to him as well. So again, from a signings point of view, that's one of the key things for him. You know, is like, okay, come on, what are they like as people? How can I connect with them? How can I help make them better? How can they make our team better? So there are the questions he quite often asks us from a recruitment point of view, not just physical, um, you know, technical, tactical. It's the person themselves as well. They're quite hard things to assess, aren't they? The personality, because we have all the data yeah, for physical, technical stuff, yeah. but personality. Yeah. How do you go about doing that? Well, I can't tell you. <laughs> um, well, there are some markers that you can do. I mean, even when you're you're scouting and playing, watching the player from the stand. So you know, how do they warm up? How do they? Uh, you know, if their team scores, how do they celebrate? How do they connect with their teammates? How are they in disappointment? How are they when they come off? You know, how are they a sub when they're warming up? How are they, um, you know, you can find out bits and pieces, you know, how are they in training every day? Invariably, we work in a, in a small industry and you can probably find out, find a previous teammate or uh, national teammate or, you know, someone who's coached them or something, somebody who knows the players to get some sort of character reference. Um, so the majority of clubs would try, try and find as much as they can out from a character reference. But we probably, or Graham put, puts it as one of the, the really high things for him. Um, you know about uh, about those uh, those personalities and character references. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, I was did a piece actually with Glyn Chamberlain uh, from Blackburn. The uh, thing is European scout there, but he was talking about those things he looks for outside the game. But again, yeah. that's hard at the moment when a lot of scouts aren't allowed into games, and you're doing it off data and uh, Y scout and things like that. Yeah, it's it's really challenging. I know one of the things that you know you you said you wanted to talk about is the current COVID and how it affects how clubs work, and that's one of them, Simon. You know, it's it's been very very difficult for us to and all of the clubs to get into games. So for our scouts, it's pretty much been a remote scouting process since March. The the, the odd country has opened up for a short period of time. The odd team has you know allowed you into a couple of games, but in the main, the majority for the last well, it's going to be almost a year, I think, by the time this is this is over. Clubs have had to scout in a slightly different way, which is invariably more remotely and trying to pick up snippets and bits and pieces. So that has has affected how we work. Yeah. And how are you looking upon fans coming back into games? Because you are one of the tiers that can have, uh, I think, is it 2,000 fans, something like that? Yeah. So we're, we're currently tier two, although I believe that they're going to look at the tiers every 14 days. Um, so we're currently tier two. So the plan would be that uh, we can have some... Um, supporters in against Southampton which is a, a week on Monday that's our next home game after after Liverpool tomorrow so we're really looking forward to it um, we we ran a trial event in the summer where our last pre-season game was against Chelsea and they allowed two and a half thousand into a into the stadium against Chelsea in the pre-season game and do you know what I thought two and a half thousand our stadium holds 32,000 so uh, smaller than some of the others but you know still a decent sized stadium 32,000 I've got to say I thought two and a half thousand people would get lost in that it wouldn't make any difference it was unbelievable oh, yeah. you know the, the atmosphere and the noise that such a small relatively small number of people can generate inside a big stadium was incredible so I, I can't wait I think as a game we've, we've really 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 missed the supporters there's been some key moments that you you just wish the supporters there could have been there to share either the euphoria or the disappointment a last minute winner against Arsenal that was fundamental in you know first game back after lockdown the supporters to be in that state in the stadium for example you know they they haven't seen Lamptey yet you know so so Lamptey has not been seen live by any of our supporters and it seems like he's been here years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, back, back end of last season. So, uh, team made his debut, uh, Leicester away, which was oh, June time, I think it was. And obviously, he's played in, in pretty much all of our games since then. Our supporters haven't seen him live. So, stuff like that, you just forget, really. And it's a dreadful shame. And, and we do miss them. The atmosphere at, at games is, is just, you know, it's, it's just nowhere near it should be. And, uh, yeah, I, I really hope that we can we can get them back in and on us for the same period and hopefully up the attendances all around the country, not not just from a financial point of view, I think just for, for the, those moments that I've just talked about there and all clubs would have them as well. And how did that Lamptey signing come about? Because he's been fantastic, obviously, and sort of had a lot of uh, spotlight on him. Yeah, so, I mean, I've I, I known him from uh, my England days. Um, Paul Winstanley and his team flagged him from doing well at, at 23s, uh, in the 23s league. We knew that his uh, his contract was running down at Chelsea. We knew that they would they would want to try and re-offer him. 
But it was a situation where I guess that he'd seen Reese James, who I think is this either the same age or a year younger, who's a, who's a top player, by the way, you know, and an England right back, um, blocking his path. Now, if, if Reese had been 34, I think probably T would have stayed at Chelsea because he would have seen his pathway. And I don't want to speak for him, but I think it was that, look, I, I want to go and play football. The pathway is blocked by a super young player who's in my position. I don't see me getting past him. And so I might need to look elsewhere to go and get my football. And we were lucky enough to be able to take advantage of that and give him an opportunity to play. But you know, from Chelsea's point of view, and, and, and who am I to comment on Chelsea's transfer business? I totally understand that you know they've got probably the best, them, him and Trent Alexander-Arnold, You know, they're the best two right-backs in the country. So you, you can only play 11 people at a time. You can only keep a certain number of players happy and give pathway to a certain number of players. So this happens on a regular basis. Um, and it just so happened that we, you know, we we had an opportunity where a couple of our right backs, so uh, Galgo, for example, was coming out of contract. Um, so we there and only had Montoya. So we thought, right, we're going to have a space opening up. So maybe maybe we've got an opportunity to um, to give Tia uh, some games and um, some exposure. And, and he's taken it with both hands. Back to an example of where you never quite know what you've got with a young player until you chuck him in and give him a go. No, definitely. And I think one of the, one of the problems people do have with the technical director role, which is probably a little bit misguided, I think, is the thing of who makes the transfers and they don't like the thought of a technical director imposing a signing on the manager. So I was just wondering how that process works of, of signing players between yourself and Graham and Phil. Sure. So, so I think the... Um... The, 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 this is only a personal opinion. So I, I don't know how all the other clubs work and I'm sure some work in a slightly different way. If I sign a player that Graham doesn't like or want, it's a drastic waste of resources because ultimately Graham's got to pick 11 players that he thinks are giving him the best chance of winning. And if he doesn't rate the attributes in the player that I do, then we're going to sign the player. We're going to invest a, a transfer fee, a salary and agents fee and all those things for a player that Graham doesn't really want or rate and is not unlikely to play. It just seems a, you know, a, a, a drastic waste of resources. So how we work here. So we agree um, the areas of the pitch that Graham would like to try and improve, or there's a player that's coming out of contract or there's a, or, or you know, maybe coming towards the end of his career, or there's a player that we think might get sold. Um, so we look at all those areas and then Graham's like, okay, fine. On that basis, you know, I'd like position X. So, okay, fine. So what the attributes we're looking for, we've already talked about our club alignment, our club DNA and some of the things we're looking for. Our first point of call is what have we got? So if he wants to, oh, I'll throw a position. He wants a centre-back. Okay, what have we got in the system? Okay, well, in the system, we've got Ben White, who's out on loan. We've got Matt Clark, who's out on loan. We've got Leo Ostergaard, who's out on loan. We're really lucky with centre-backs, I have to say. So, right, will any of them do, Graham? Yeah, okay, well, blimey, I actually like all three of them, and they all three did really well on loan last year. Okay, so Ben White's the one. They all came back for pre-season. Ben was the one that Graham wanted to keep in the building and, and play in with the Premier League. Scenario number two is we haven't got that position in the 23s or out on loan. 18s are normally a bit too far away from the first team. So we now we need to go into the market. We now need to try and buy one. So it's like, okay, which attributes are really important? Well, we think we've got a good idea of that. How are they going to fit into the team? Danny Welbeck, we were looking for a, a sort of a bigger physical profile, number nine. So we had Connolly, we had Malpai, both of them, you know, a little bit shorter, maybe don't quite have that physical presence that, that Danny has. So we're looking for something a little bit different. They were the attributes. Danny came available. The recruitment department liked him. Graham liked the, the the profile, liked him. And then, okay, let's see if we can try and get a deal done. But it, it's got to be in, in, in agreement. And we, we would look at, you know, firstly, do the numbers fit? So, you know, we, we all like Harry Kane, but he's not coming to us. <laughs> so, um, as a, a Messi would be another one, you know. So, it, you, you've, got, you've got to have a reality of what sort of budget and transfer budget you've got. So, you know, do the centre forwards we're looking for, do they fit within our budget? Yes, they do. Okay, great. So, we've got a list of five now. Recruitment point of view, right. You might want to order those, uh, you know, from one to five. What do we think? Um, what does it look like? What's the future potential? One might be 19, one might be 31, you know, so all that gets factored in. Okay, Graham, this is what we've got. What do you think? Yeah, okay, I like that one. Don't see that one fitting for how I want to play, Dan. Mm, that one, not so much. And yet really like that one as well. So I might like one and four. Okay, fine. We'll just see if we can try and get one of those over the line and try and get a deal done on that one. So we'd always work with, you know, Graham's preferred choice. And there's been times, you know, when Graham has said that I'd rather work with what I've got 
I don't think any of the five on your list are better than what we've got. So I'd, I'd rather work with the players that we've got and try and make them better than yeah. sign a player just for the sake of it. Right. Oh, that's superb. Thank you. Um, and who actually then, does the negotiations then? Would that be you? So I just want to go back to another oh, yeah. sort of sign. So then I'll right. answer your question on negotiations. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so the other sort of signings, we, we often sign players outside of the first team realm. So we would sign player signings that we might send straight back on loan or might be for the 23s. So they would, Graham would have less influence on those because ultimately they're not first team ready. He would then track them with me when they're out on loan, for example, but he would have less, you know, he, he's, he's got to be focused and he's focused on his sort of 22, 23 man squad and trying to win games on a Saturday. So he wouldn't get involved in some of those players down, younger down. Right. that aren't ready. So we'll make those calls as a club rather than Graham being on top of those particular signings. Right. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah, and then I was just wondering who does do the negotiations then when you've identified the target? Yeah, so Paul Winstan is a really experienced head of recruitment. Paul's been here for a number of years. So Paul, myself, sometimes used to Paul Barber as well. Um, so it, it, it depends. It depends. You know, if we're getting towards a, the end of a busy transfer window and we've got three or four plates spinning, then I might pick up one. Paul might pick up one. Paul Barber might pick up one. Paul Winstanley would certainly lead the initial stages and then him and I would, would tend to finish it off. That's how it tends to work um, for us. And then, of course, we've got things like recontracts. So once they're in the building, you know, handing out new contracts, improved contracts, trying to keep them. So there's that part of negotiations that people forget. And there's sales as well and loans out. So, you know, David Weir would work on loans out. Um, I would work on sales as well alongside Paul Winstanley, Paul Barber. So it's, it's a bit of a team effort, really. Paul, in the main, Paul Winstanley would lead on, on transfers in. Uh, and I would probably lead on uh, new contracts and transfers out. But we do it as a team. Right. Fantastic. And I was just going to spin all the way back to West Brom, actually, when you first got the technical director job in uh, 2007, I think it was. I was just wondering how that came about and whose idea that was. Um... I mean, so I have been doing it for 13 years. Thanks for that. So uh, Jeremy Peace. Jeremy was the chairman at West Bromwich Albion at the time and a, and a real visionary, I have to say. And when Jeremy took over at West Bromwich Albion, he'd, he'd spent some time looking around um, some European clubs. And I think always quite liked the idea of having a, my title was a sporting and technical director, was, yeah. was Jeremy's title. Right. I was the I was the academy manager at the time, and he called me down into his office, uh, and I never forget it. Um, and he used to, you know, he used to probably give me a shout once a month for an update on the academy. So he called me, he said, um, "Dan, can you come down and see me at two o'clock this afternoon?" Uh, yeah, no problem, Chairman. Come down. So I'm going down, expecting, you know, okay, how's everything going in the academy? Give me an update. He said, "Look, we've been thinking, uh, Tony Mowbray and I, and Tony was um, the manager at the time. Um, we'd like you to consider doing the role of sporting and technical director." I was like, right, okay, what, what is it, Chairman? What, what, what is it? Well, these are the four bits. So there's first team, player recruitment, academy, medical and sports science. It's to pull those four together, have a head of each of those departments. He said, but, you know, it's a new role. So, you know, you can shape it. Um, you can help us shape it. And, uh, let, let, you know, so let's see it goes. And I think at the time, Nick Hammond was doing something similar at Reading. Um, so I, I remember calling calling Nick and uh, he very kindly gave me two or three hours of his time. I went down to Reading, had a cup of tea with him, said, come on, Nick, what, what is it? How do you do it? Um, and Damien Camoli was doing something similar at Tottenham, I think Damien was at the time. But other than that, nobody else had it. So I said to the chairman at the time, I said, OK, can I have a think about it? So he said, yeah, come back and see me tomorrow. Typical Jeremy, wanted a quick answer. Um, I said, look, I love my job as academy manager. Um, it's, it's a brilliant job. I love it. I'll try it for six months until the end of the season. And if you like me and I like doing the job, then let's talk about doing it permanently at the end of the season. But can I have it in writing? If I don't like it or you don't like me, I can have my old job back. I can have my academy manager's job back. Mm -hmm. So he said, yeah, no problem. So we did that. I did the first January window. Uh, we made two signings. We signed Graham Dorrance for £100,000 from Livingston, uh, who turned out to be a really good signing for West Bromwich Albion. And we signed a, a Korean player called Kim Dehan. Uh, who came in uh, less effective, I think, would be a, a, a fair way of putting it, than, than Graham. And we ended up getting promoted uh, into the Premier League. And at the end of that season, you know, I'd said, yeah, OK, look, I'll give it a go on a permanent basis. And that was it. I was off and running. The jobs you've done, I'm thinking like West Brom and the FA, you were there long term. So are you going to be long term at Brighton? And second part of that, what are your ambitions for the club? What can you achieve? Well, long term at Brighton is in the hands of Tony Bloom and Paul Barber. So you better you better you better ask them that. Um, I've been so lucky, Simon. I 
I haven't had a job that I've disliked. I've absolutely loved all of my job. I love academy manager jobs at Peterborough, Cambridge and West Brom. I love my sporting and technical director job at West Brom. I've loved my job at the FA and I love this one. Um, I did six years at West Brom, five, six years academy manager at West Brom, five or six years as a technical director. I did six years at the FA. I'm less than two years into this one. And it, and it is quite a long-term role, really. It's not it's not a job that you go in for 12 months and, and out you go again. So certainly my, I haven't had any thoughts whatsoever about leaving this one. Certainly not, not my choice, <laughs> but ultimately, look, you know, I, I obviously get judged on, on the job that I do here. So that's down to Paul and Tony and how happy they are with me. But um, I think in order to try and get all of the things that up and running that, you know, I, I, I believe in and, and and hopefully can put Brighton in a in a better position either in the league or financially or pathway through for young players or better in the transfer market or any of those things. Um, then hopefully you know that that's I'll be in a position in a few years' time when all of those have achieved and and then who knows. But um, certainly you know my my ambitions at the moment is to try and fulfil the club's vision and the club at some stage over the next few years would like to try and get into the top ten in the Premier League. So. Now we've, it's a really tough target. There's some brilliant clubs out there. Um, we haven't got the uh, you know the biggest budget clearly, so we're going to have to have some some really good work from a coaching, from a recruitment, from an academy, from a mental and phys- mental well-being point of view, from psychology, from our S and C and medical department. Everybody is going to allow in together to try and get you know Graham and the team to 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 top ten. There's two targets for us really. One is retention of, uh, of Premier League status. It's important to us to obviously try and stay in the league, but an ambitious and lofty target is try and strive for the for the top half of the league. And top four for the WSL for Hope and the team. So again, try and stay in the WSL first and foremost and strive for the top four. So they're ultimately the two main things that I'm focusing on and all the other spokes of the wheel to try and support that vision and try and get us into a stage where, you know, hopefully we'll we'll be able to get there. So staying in the leagues and then trying to get finish up as high as we possibly can. Long-term post that, well, I'm still just in my 40s. So um, hopefully I've still got a number of years left um, working in football. I thoroughly enjoy this job. So I love being a technical director. So I've done it for 12, 13 years. I have no aspirations to be a manager or anything like that. I love doing this. Uh, I've been really unfortunate, been really fortunate to have three wonderful opportunities, West Brom, England and here. Um, and, uh, you know, that my, my ambition is to stay doing this job for as long as I possibly can. And then who knows in the future, whether it you know, m- maybe have another go working abroad or something at some stage stage in my life when my children have grown up and left uh, you know something like that maybe but at this moment in time I'm just focusing on doing the best job I possibly can for for Tony Paul Graham Hope and Brighton have Albion Football Club oh, that's fantastic thanks so much for your time no problem pleasure good luck with the podcast thank you for listening to the training ground guru podcast in association with huddle we'll be back soon with an interview with Arsenal's under 16 coach Dan Michichi see you then